Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Well, we all know the old saw that history does not repeat itself, but that it sometimes rhymes. We're doing something a little different today in this extended edition of the podcast by focusing on the election campaign and the results of October 21st and examining it through a historical lens. With me in the studio are two deeply knowledgeable people. Larry LeDuc is Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. He has written many books on diverse aspects of Canadian and British elections and was the co-author of Dynasties and Interludes, Past and Present in Canadian Electoral Politics, published by Dundurn Press. I keep a well-thumbed copy by my elbow at all times. Peter Van Loan has also had a sideline business as an adjunct professor of planning at the University of Toronto. He studied politics and international relations before becoming a lawyer. He was elected MP for York Simcoe in 2004 and was the leader of the government in the House of Commons from 2007 to 2008 and again from 2011 to 2015. He also served as Minister of Public Safety and Minister of International Trade in the Harper government. He retired from politics in the summer of 2018 and is now practicing municipal law at Aird Burles. Gentlemen, welcome to the microphone and thank you very much for being here. Let's start with the obvious question. What was this 2019 federal election really about? And do you see any parallels with past contests on the issues? Larry Leduc. Um, th- thank you, Patrice. Uh, I'll start by saying that a lot of the media was characterizing this election as an issueless election as the campaign unfolded. Uh, I wouldn't use quite that term, but I do think that some of the high-profile issues of Canadian politics were not as heavily emphasized in this election as we might have expected. We know from studying the history that certain types of issues are always there. Uh, For example, the economy. Uh, The economy is always an issue in elections. It's been talked about in that context since Andre Siegfried wrote a book on this in in 1908. Uh, And there was some discussion of the economy, but not as central as we might have expected. Very little, Very little. Uh, there was also some discussion of health care, but certainly not as central as it has been in the last several federal elections. Uh, more coming up here and there with pharmacare mm. and side issues like that, but not sort of the central issues about the delivery of health care. And national unity issues were in there also, uh, but again, not central. And those are the three areas that Siegfried emphasized. And we say in dynasties, of course, that those are always there in elections in Canada because that's the way our politics is basically uh, con- constructed. The issues that were discussed are what we have called in our writing valence issues. They tend to be issues on which people generally agree. We want good economic performance. We want good health care. We want the country to stay together. Uh, And so the parties discuss these issues, certainly, but they discuss them in terms that, well, we can do a better job with that. And I think there was a fair amount of that in this uh, campaign. But I don't think any one of them was the centerpiece of the campaign in the sense that the economy was, let's say, uh, uh, the last couple of elections. Peter Van Loan. It really was, in my view, an election without issues. Um, the, what was happening in the election, what was it about? The public was tired of Justin Trudeau. The bloom was off the rose, if I can use that expression. But at the same time, they weren't sure about the alternatives. They were unhappy with the leadership choices all around. Ironically, usually if you have an election without issues, it's because they're trying to make it about leadership and personalities. Here we had one where that was kind of the opposite and everybody was not only hiding issues, but they were also hiding 
the leadership personalities as well, or at least not trying to showcase them or not showcasing them as strengths because that was incredible. The uh, reason for this, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, I put it all back to SNC-Lavalin having appeared on the scene as an issue back in February, which led the Conservatives to uh, conclude that they could probably win the election by sanding down every edge, trying to have no controversial issues, and simply win by default with folks mm-hmm. being unhappy with Justin Trudeau. And that might have been the right calculus in February, but clearly by the time the campaign came around, that was no longer the right calculus. That being said, the path was set. And for the Liberals, people knew what they were about to the extent that they were going to raise issues. The way they did it, I think, was quite clever. They sort of uh, succeeded in kind of narrow casting the issues that mattered to the markets. They wanted them to matter to and at the right times. Uh, so the strategically, they uh, managed to get folks to uh, vote Liberal if they were uncomfortable with the Conservatives, even if their first choice might have been, say, the Green Party or the NDP as a natural place to go, uh, because those parties also didn't succeed in really crystallizing the campaign on issues. Is there an analogous election to this? I think 1972 is the one. And uh, In terms of issues. In terms of issues and in terms of uh, the slogan that was drawn at the time and the approach for the Liberals Oddly, Justin Trudeau's father, of course, 1972, was the land is strong, a sense that they were in very good shape and then never really materialized. People were kind of, eh, uh, and uh, he ended up sort of in a similar spot, except Justin ended up with a much stronger position than his father at the end of the campaign. It's, I mean, the land, you have to admit, the land is strong. Uh, I mean, in my lifetime, this is probably the first election where unemployment is not an issue. Unemployment is at record levels, low. Low. Uh, inflation low is that inflation has been has not been an issue in, in a dozen years now, at least a dozen years. Fifteen? No, what am I saying? Almost twenty years. Um, the economy was not top of mind. It, I mean, people don't have. Well, it was in Alberta, it, except in Alberta, and <laughs> yeah. that's what I think is important. I yeah. think that the the, the Western economy. Uh, the Western issues were, were were very important, and even though we in the East weren't particularly sensitive to it, I think it really burned hot in the West. And I think that in terms of issues and in terms of of tying it to the economy, this election was very particular. Um, but so I mean, I think we're in. My 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 point simply is that I think the 2019 election pointed us into a new direction. This is I mean, a lot of people called it the Seinfeld election, the 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 election about nothing. But I think it really was about the West and the place of the West. It's not about the traditional issues that you've pointed out, you and your colleagues in your in your book in the past. National unity, well, that was a, an issue in Quebec, but I don't think it played out. Larry Leduc? Yeah, I wanted to pick up on something Peter said because I think his analysis was 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 spot on. Um, first of all, the land is strong. That that was the first thing I thought of when the Liberals released their slogan, "Choosing Choosing Forward." I mm-hmm. thought it's a very vacuous. <laughs> slogan. It has no real meaning, and I and I thought it was kind of a mistake. Now maybe it was maybe it wasn't a mistake in the end because they did win, but on the other hand, at the beginning of the campaign, it certainly didn't seem to get their campaign off to a very strong mm-hmm. strong start. And like the land is strong, people sort of looked at it and they said, well, "What is it? What is all this about?" You know. And then you had the election sort of scale down a bit from there over the first several several weeks. Um, the point that Peter made about leaders also, I think, is important because it was because the issues were such low profile, it was more about leaders, but it was about leaders in a negative sense, uh, the leaders attacking each other. Of course, uh, Scheer came right out on the attack from 
day one, uh, simply attacking Trudeau. And the liberals gave it right back, of course, in, in uh, trying to uh, uh, talk about Scheer's uh, limitations or deficiencies as a, as a leader. And again, all the, the other parties chimed in in this game pretty much, too. That's a trend that's been developing in our politics for a while. Our politics is more about leaders, but it's also picked up on the negativity and the negative techniques that are now widely used in election campaigns, not just in Canada, but in many other places. So it was a somewhat issueless campaign and a very negative campaign. And that put a lot of people off. Peter Van Loon on leadership? I, well, <clears throat> other than leadership on the slogan itself, yes. I thought Choose Forward was a brilliant slogan by the Liberals. I'll point two out reasons. it was used in 1962, Peter. You know, and it may have been used in 1962, <laughs> and it seemed to make progress for them. They took down the <laughs> greatest majority government ever in Canadian history down to a minority position in 62, the Liberals did. And this time they were choosing forward in the sense that, uh, of course, anytime you're up against conservatives who are defenders of tradition to some extent, forward suggests abandoning traditions. And we know the Liberals have certainly been doing that in all kinds of ways. But uh, the for them, I thought it was a brilliant slogan because, first of all, as a strategist, it was about choice. And it suggested to people, don't kid yourself, this election is about a choice. There is a difference between us and the other guys. And that was one of the things they had to do. But then it allowed them to define what that choice was on. Is it going forwards? Is it going backwards? And because of the fairly modest policy options offered by the Conservatives, which were mostly uh, bring back stuff that was happening under the previous Harper government, that suggested moving backwards because they then managed to dredge up some of these old debates over social yes. issues that the Conservatives said were not on the table but didn't have other stuff to suggest was on the table. They managed to further crystallize that messaging. And I think that was the key to their success. And then, of course, they're very efficient. It worked very well in terms of where they targeted that message to get a very efficient vote outcome and result, which got them into a very good spot. Uh, but was it a turning point? Were there really new trends? I don't think so. I think the Western alienation trend is the 1970s and 80s all over again, uh, just a little more severe. The Eastern indifference to it is the same as it was back then, uh, and the lack of concern from the rest of the country. Uh, they don't take it, the rest of the country doesn't take it as seriously as alienation when we see it from Quebec, and we may want to talk a bit, a bit yeah. more about that. But there was no, you know, what were the supposed to be the great turning points, the rise of populism that we've seen elsewhere? did not happen here. Uh, some say that uh, uh, the media buyout by the Liberals made a difference. I don't think that that had the media playing any different role than they did before. Their biases have been the same and been clear. So uh, I have trouble trying to find some great new departure or new direction. It, or uh, some significance. Uh, well, <laughs> you could even say it that way. I don't know that I want to be that critical. Let's go to leadership. Um, do you see any parallels between the leaders of the parties this time around and their predecessors? Are there parallels that we can draw between, let's say, Justin Trudeau and his predecessors or Andrew Scheer and his predecessors um, or uh, Jagmeet Singh, obviously uh, very different from his predecessors? But are there trends, are there echoes from the past that you see in the uh, the leaders that we've had today? And obviously Elizabeth May doesn't doesn't really fit because she's the first leader, uh, so there's no real past leader in that case. Any thoughts on on how these leaders, Larry LeDuc? Yeah, Patrice, I think that's very difficult to do because you're doing it on an individual basis, and uh, the the set is just too small, you know, to to generalize from. I would say about leadership, however, that leaders have become so central to our politics that we end up talking about leaders, whether we should be framing our politics that way or not. I remarked to my class when the 
election campaign was going on that if a, a visiting American pop who knew nothing about Canada popped in here for a few days just to see what we were up to, uh, he or she would think it was a presidential election because everything is discussed yes. in terms of leaders and leader attributes. So in that sense, um, you know, the leaders are, are terribly important. We do focus the politics that way. But whether Trudeau is like his father or Scheer is like Harper, I think that's a comparison we can't draw, draw very, very effectively. Uh, we can draw it perhaps to some extent in terms of techniques or, or tactics. Uh, some leaders are more charismatic than others. Some are better political strategists than others. Harper, I always thought, was a brilliant political strategist, even though his, his personal image often suffered in other in other ways uh, but you know, but beyond that I think it's difficult to say, to say that a leader today was like a leader from the past Peter we are as Larry said in an era where leadership is paramount in elections uh, they matter more than ever before it's not entirely new it was when I was first getting involved in campaigns uh, in the 70s 80s you would see that we had campaigns that we called hearts and minds campaigns where the uh, advertising, the commercials, the image of the leader, having the best song, those were the kinds of things that worked. But the leader was sort of central to it as the metaphor that bundled all those things about the person. And then we went into 1988 with this very unusual departure for my lifetime, the election that was most about an issue ever, the free trade election. And then I think for a bunch of elections after that, Issues seem to matter a lot more. People said, hey, we can win in campaign and elections can be about issues, but they seem to have been sliding back again uh, to this notion more of just being about the leader and about some of this emotional stuff. And I, I, I tell you, you know that every campaign had their own song this time around. And that's, I think, part of the recognition that we're back to that hearts and minds a little bit. That being said, in terms of each of the leaders, uh, notwithstanding it being a leadership era again, they all were kind of seen by the electorate as falling short. Yes. Justin Trudeau arrived four years ago with uh, great hope and optimism, and a lot was invested into the personality and the character and the openness, uh, the sunny ways. All of those were uh, through a series of scandals, whether it be SNC-Lavalin, how he treated cabinet ministers, uh, uh, some a lot of... Uh, the other side of that coin about being a celebrity, when people begin to see that you're a bit of a shallow personality, he ended up looking a little bit like a, a lightweight who maybe, as the ads went a long time ago, wasn't quite up for the job, not ready yet. Uh, Stephen Har uh sorry, uh, uh, Andrew Shear, uh, was definitely very different than Stephen Harper and uh, wanted to be seen as different than Stephen Harper. He clearly wanted to be liked and approved by the elites. I think that's always a mistake for conservatives strategically in an echo of a previous leader, a little bit like Joe Clark that way. Yes, I was Wanted to do that. And what about Robert Stanfield? And, is, uh, is there a parallel there? Between uh, Robert Stanfield wanted to always be the nice guy. Yes. I mean, the guy took down the liberals in a confidence vote in the House and yeah. gave them a chance to come back and prove confidence <laughs> in the House. You couldn't get any more doormatty nice guy than that. So that's an example. A, I do but, see a parallel between Shear and Stanfield. Nice guys, you know, they, but and, you know, well, moderate we'll see, in and their policies, moderate in their policies. And then you go on to Jagmeet Singh, who's yes. a very interesting case study because he represents a whole bunch of positive firsts that people liked. But as a leader, he was fascinating for his lack of understanding of his own party and its own history. And Steve Pakin wrote a very interesting piece about this and didn't seem terribly interested. And he even doesn't seem that interested in about issues. Well, it's... And uh, it, it, the result... for the NDP, yes. like he managed to turn... 
losing half their seats into a victory only by how low he took them in the first place. But it's a, an interesting departure for a party that has been the strongest policy-based conscience in the House of Commons. The NDP has, has retained six seats in Ontario, one seat in Quebec. They have one or two seats in the Maritimes. The NDP is now, its core strength is now the Pacific Coast. It's not even inland, inland BC, it's the, it's the Pacific Coast. This is now the strength of the of the uh, of the NDP. I mean, and I think in that regard, this election is very uh, different than the others. I mean, it's it's practically been eliminated from Central Canada. A small, a few votes, a few, again, say, a few seats again in Manitoba for sure. What they what they looked at down the barrel of the gun when the campaign set off was, I think, single digit seats. Yeah, and it's largely thanks to Elizabeth May's uh, fairly uh, I don't know odd performance, I would call it, where. I think she was communicating to her supporters. She desperately wanted Justin Trudeau to win, so they took their cues and uh, abandoned her, and that gave Justin gave Jagmeet Singh a chance to remove to re-enter that space that they had lost to the Green Party, uh, and that's the big transition and transformation in this election that was missed. It should have been that we were having a conversation now about how the Green Party had replaced the NDP. Yeah. And that really isn't do. happening. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that, Peter, but the, the people have been misinterpreting the NDP's strength in elections for a long time. I mean, the NDP is the third party uh, in, in Canadian politics. It has been since the early 1960s when the NDP was founded, 1961. It benefits in some elections from that position as a third party because when people are unhappy with the other two, they pick up they pick up votes. The, the strong NDP supporters always misread that as thinking that now they're on the rise. You know, the party is finally coming into its own. 2011, I think, is going to be increasingly reinterpreted by us political scientists who study these things because the orange wave, as, was, as it was called, was largely about Quebec and, late, and Leighton making a breakthrough yes. in Quebec. And now I can see, we can see, I think, with hindsight, that 2011 was the place that Quebec voters uh, would tend to park their votes with a third party, and the NDP happened to be that third party in in 2011. Well, it was also the liberal collapse under Mr. Ignatieff. That's right. That's right. But this isn't just Ignatieff because this happens in Quebec on a fairly regular basis since we're talking here about history. This happens historically when when one or both of the major parties are led by Anglophones. Mm. And there is a vacuum in Quebec politics when those are unacceptable options. Voters look for a third alternative. They look for social credit back in 1962, right. which we were talking about a while back. They looked at they took uh, took the NDP because Leighton made an effective intervention in Quebec in that campaign, uh, and and even even this election, which I think we're going to get to eventually, Mr. Blanchet stepped into that yes va- vacuum, that, and that that is something that has happened regularly in 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 Quebec. The NDP was the beneficiary of it in 2011. They couldn't hold it, and no one thought they could hold on to onto those seats now. And uh, you're right; it was a good election campaign for. Uh, for Mr. Singh, in spite of the losses, and that's because expectations were so low. Well, I mean, again, no, no one blames him yeah. for losing those Quebec seats. Nobody blames him. Um, I was simply going to point out that the NDP is back in its traditional territory, about sixteen percent of the um, popular of the of the vote. Yep. Uh, the Bloc Québécois coming out with thirty-two seats and about thirty-three uh, percent of the vote in Quebec. Yes, if I understand correctly, uh, is still below its historical high. It's not the days of uh, Lucien Bouchard or no. Gilles Duceppe, but it's still uh, it's still much better than the, the the last results of the last two elections. So there's a sign there. Um, the the Conservatives uh, got 34 percent of the vote, 
uh, Peter Van Loan, 34% of the vote, which is uh, roughly roughly average for, for the, the Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, what was missing in terms of, in terms of, of making a, a broader appeal, a better appeal? Was there a, is there a historical lesson that could have been applied by the Conservatives in this campaign uh, in any way? I mean, in its appeal to Eastern Canada, for example? I mean, the reality is that it hasn't done well in Ontario. It, it didn't do well in Quebec. It's all completely shut out from the Maritimes. Uh, was there something that the Conservatives could have learned from their past in 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 programming this campaign? Well, I'll perhaps bridge to what the Conservatives can learn now by going back to 2015. The 2015 election mm. for the Conservatives was an interesting one because, of course, Stephen Harper lost. Great defeat. Buried in that is the fact that it actually was not a great defeat. The Conservatives came out with 100 seats. Yes. After a decade in government, which for a conservative government, when they get defeated after a decade in government, they tend to be in pretty rough shape. You're thinking 1993, are you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> among other times. But, uh, a complete uh, collapse in 1993. Yeah, exactly. But uh, 100 seats is pretty impressive. Mm. And of that 100, about a third of them were new members, which was interesting. Usually when you have a government defeated, almost everybody who's there is from the previous government and they're kind of feeling sad, long in the tooth, saying, ah, oh, for the good old days when I used to be somebody. Mm. Because there were a third of new members, there was a lot of energy and that really helped to keep things moving. And uh, that was a real strength of the party. Where I see a real weakness now after 2019 is notwithstanding that they've won a whole bunch more seats, what that caucus is composed of is significantly different. The Ontario caucus has remained relatively small. Yes. But a lot of experience is gone. And if you think about how Harper built a government, there were kind of two pieces of that I think were key within the dynamic. One was mm. a bunch of folks that came from the Ontario government, Jim Flaherty, John Baird, Tony Clement, people who looked like they had some stature, had some experience. And there was a, a strong element, which I don't think should be discounted, which is what I would call the hardened political hacks. Folks <laughs> who knew how to organize and run but campaigns. you left, you left. People like myself, but not just me. John Baird would have been sure, one in 20 sure. but people like Stella Ambler and Kelly Leach yes. and Gord Brown, and I could go on and on. But like yeah. the caucus was filled with these people from Ontario who had been running campaigns and involved in campaigns since they were teenagers, who knew this stuff inside out and understood what it took to win in Ontario. You look at the Ontario caucus right now, mm. it is a very different kind of caucus. You look at my successors, Kelly Leach's successors, and I could go on and on. Yeah. They're people that come out of municipal politics or small business that are almost newcomers yes. to the Conservative Party that don't have that uh, generations or decades of fighting campaigns in the trenches as a campaign manager, as a volunteer, as a party official before they ever got elected. So there's and a lesson to be learned So here. I think the Conservatives are going to be challenged yes. developing that antenna at a caucus level on what it takes to win in Ontario. So a couple of historical lessons, if I can impose myself. I mean, obviously, the I'm going to go back and in, deep into history here. Robert Borden uh, preparing for the 1911 election, going deep into Ontario to find new leadership. Of course, taking advantage of uh, free trade, um, attracting liberals, former liberals, to the uh, to the uh, conservative fold to fight the free trade agreement. I'm thinking of uh, Arthur Meehan in 1925, really making a hard comeback in Ontario in 1925, not so much in terms of seats, but in terms of popular vote. Um, John Diefenbaker in 58, very strong. Mr. Mulroney, 
1984. I mean, the build-up to 84, really working hard to attract talent in Ontario. And they really did. They brought they in worked. the big blue machine from it Ontario yes. that were, again, yes. hardened political activists, understood how to run campaigns and to win them. Right now, first of all, there are fewer of those people around, yeah. generally. They're getting older in the way things have gone. But secondly, that's just not there. It's no. just not there. Well, in the it's a challenge Shear for Mr. Shear right now. Certainly, it's a challenge yep. for Mr. Shear. Uh, let's talk about uh, the fact that we're in a liberal minority. Uh, we've been there before, in 1921, and 1921 I, is really always a, a question mark. There was a one-seat majority in 1921. Uh, in 1925, it was a liberal minority. Uh, in 1926, Mackenzie King was was elected with. A majority, but it was one of those, it was a really weird result with a whole bunch of liberal progressives uh, elected to the House of Commons who rallied to the side of, uh, of Mackenzie King. Um, we had uh, a liberal minority in 1963. We had a liberal minority in 65, in 72, in 2004. Uh, do you see any parallels or any any thoughts that come to your mind regarding those precedents and what the liberal behavior might be uh, in the coming months or, or, or years? In other words, can history help us since we have been in liberal territory, liberal minority territory before? Is there is there a lesson that history can teach us? Yeah, well, let's, let's be just a little bit more selective about the history. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about 1962 and 1972, and I think those are the minority situations that are most like the present. In 1962, of course, it was because of the, uh, the social credit breakthrough in Quebec. Yes. And, and in 1972, it was because of the liberal losses in the West. So, and, and those, of course, are very similar to the present situ- situation. As long as we have a, a, th- a three or four party system and, and the third and fourth parties have their regional strengths, as the Bloc, the bloc does and the NDP does now in, and, and now in the, D.C. What do you think uh, of the Greens, Larry? Well, the Greens only have three seats, yeah. so they don't explain the minority government. But as long as parties have regional strengths, they're going to win some seats. Mm. And uh, that's, that's going to be minority governments probably. And uh, we've, uh, we shouldn't forget that the first two Harper governments were minority yes. governments as yes. well. So we don't have to go back too far to see uh, minority government in Canada and the reasons for it. So I think it's, it's likely to, um, to be around for a while unless the party system really, change, really changes in some fundamental way. I have to point out this is the ninth minority in 60 years. Yes, a minority government. 34% of our elections since 1960 have been minorities. Yes, and minority governments can last for quite a while. The, the, I think the, the second Harper government was the second longest serving minority government. And the uh, first one was, the, was right behind that in terms of length. The Mackenzie yes. King had a longer yeah. uh, time in minority, as you pointed out. But, uh, you know, minority governments can, can last quite a while. Quite a while. I, hey, I hey, expect this Peter minority Benham. is going to be here as long as Justin Trudeau wants it to be here. <laughs> <laughs> he benefits from the fact that it's a divided opposition, yes. not only left and right ideologically, but also on this federalist separatist divide. Uh, for him, it's a chance to remake himself and look like uh, you know one of these very savvy leaders who managed to cobble a winning coalition together on issue to issue. And doesn't that show how wise he is, which is for him a real need to remake himself and he can do this. But in fact, it'd be very hard not to. Because uh, on any particular issue, you should be able to, on an economic issue, have either the Conservatives or the NDP with you because they're unlikely to join hands to take you down. And uh, the only thing, the only weakness or caveat is 
is only going to run into trouble if there's some kind of scandal of an ethical nature or otherwise that is so severe that the other parties conclude we cannot continue to support him in spite of it. And those scandals have been known to happen well, under they, liberal government. It happened certainly in 62. The Diefenbaker minority could not withstand the, the shock of the... Um the October, uh, the missile crisis in 62 yeah. and the fallout of that in, in terms of shaking Canadian politics, um, Pearson took full advantage of that. But Peter Van Loan, I want to come back to you. I mean, Mr. Harper, the Harper government, in the minority government in 2008 is instructive here, is it not? In the sense that uh, you guys were in a minority, the Conservative Party was in a minority, and you somehow managed to translate that into a, a really strong majority in 2011. What was the what was the trick for you guys? Do you think thinking back now, uh, almost uh, over a decade? Well, I'm fond of saying you need to have a dance partner in a minority, mm. and for the Liberals right now, it's very easy. They can go right on pipelines and have the Conservative Party. They can go left on Pharmacare and count on the NDP and maybe the Bloc. For us, we didn't have any natural ideological partners unless we went left, which is where we couldn't go. Yes. So we made our partner the public. And we governed from a position of strength, knowing that what we, we the issues we were putting on the table and what we were presenting brinksmanship on, if you will, were issues where if we were going to fight an election on it, we knew the public would be with us. And so we were happy. So very careful. And we were happy to pick those fights and we were happy to challenge the opposition to take us down, which despite my best efforts, they would not do. <laughs> so uh, that is a, a very, very different dynamic than that that I Justin Trudeau to, finds. Yeah. What it does have in common is that he does have to, on every issue he puts forward, contemplate, am I prepared to have an election on this issue? Because that is always, of course, part of the equation. How important is money in that? How important is money? What yeah. do you mean? Money in for terms, parties? Or? Yeah, money in the parties. I think long. that it is a factor, but if you sense victory, uh, you don't care. You don't you'll, care. you'll go yeah. for it even if you don't have the money in the bank to run the campaign. Yeah. I still, I think you're underestimating the, the, the great trick that you guys pulled off between 08 and 11. Uh, saying that you're choosing issues with, with, that had the public support. I mean, we were going through the financial crisis. You increased the budget dramatically. You went into a deficit. You massively invested in infrastructure. Um, is that what you mean by you're saying that you're going with the public? This is what the public wanted. They wanted to see the government react, and the government did react. Well, by that time, I'm no longer house leader, so it's a different strategy. You're in, you're it's John Baird, a cabinet. different sir. person, and uh, <laughs> he did navigate it differently than I would have, but that's what the times mm -hmm. called for. And as you said, uh, we, I think the public was generally with us in the polls. Yes. They sensed that if it was going to be a, an election about the economy and minding the fiscal house and keeping things on track, it was probably a good set of issues for us. We just had to be seen as proactively doing the right things to address that. And if uh, if we yeah, whistled by the graveyard and pretended there were no problems, mm. uh, then we would have been uh, not only negligent in our duties to the public service, but the public would have seen that and we wouldn't have looked good. <laughs> but an election on the economy is generally a good election for Larry conservatives. Yeah. Let's let's not give them too much credit for this. Uh, I, I'm I, counting I on you, sir. I mean, Harper, Harper, <laughs> Harper was a was a, a brilliant political tactician, and uh, having Peter by his side, I'm sure, was very very helpful. But uh, let's give uh, Mr. Mignatiev give them all the help they needed in picking yes. exactly the wrong time to yes. finally defeat the government after we, pulling back from the brink. And I will tell you this: I I was stunned. I mean, I think we were all stunned that he chose to pull the plug at the time. And uh, you're talking about Mr. Uh, Mr. Ignatiev oh, in the second minority government when he brought 
vote and the government on a confidence vote. Right. It was, the writing was on the Money wall. Vote. It was clear how that election was going to end. That's why none of us believed it would happen. <laughs> why in the world would he sign this Sometimes political suicide note? <laughs> but I think he just got fed up with uh, the campaigns we were running against him. Yeah. I think there's an interesting parallel, again, with 62 and 72 and with the uh, the Harper Tories in 08. Uh, 62, the mistake was made. Diefenbaker could not overcome the uh, the disaster over the um, the missile crisis. The economy was not doing well. Right. Unemployment was climbing. And Diefenbaker, I think people had had enough of Diefenbaker's personality. In 72, you see Mr. Trudeau going hard left. I mean, th- there's no doubt that the policies of the Liberal government really moved left. More state uh, statist, uh, more involvement in the economy. And again, I come back to Mr. Harper. Between 08, with a f- terrible financial crisis of 08, there's much more spending happening in government. You guys also moved left. And it paid off. In 72 and in 2011, it paid off. Is there, is there in the history a clue as to what might be the, uh, the Liberal Party plan going forward? Larry Duke. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little more cautious about terms like left and right because our politics has never been as ideological as it is in some other uh, countries. And those terms get tossed around pretty, pretty freely. I mean, it is true. I think the comments you made about the Trudeau government from 1968 to 1972 are, are right. And 72 it, to 74. Or 70, already, yeah. and, and, but then in, in 72, uh, it, of course, the bloom was off the rose there as yes, well. Yes. Uh, he, he had won a, a great victory in 68, uh, based largely on personality. That was another election that was not, that was pretty much issueless and focused heavily on leader on leadership characteristics. And uh, uh, then then that faded, that faded. And some of the uh, Trudeau in his first term in office made, managed to alienate parts of the country and yeah. various other gr- groups that he, whose support he needed, and uh, they withdrew their support. But he survived that election. And uh, then it, he got into the minority government situation that we were just talking about, where the question was, how long would it last? And he brought in uh, very seasoned political advisors then after that 1972 yes. election uh, who understood parliamentary politics much better, I think, than Pierre Trudeau did. And they bided their time uh, and waited for the point when uh, also as uh, comparing with the scenario that Peter mentioned in 2011, they wanted to get themselves defeated in 1974. And they and, waited for the NDP and, to do and, it. And they waited for the yeah. NDP to do it. Yeah. yeah. Let's turn to the West. Let's turn to the West because I think something's happened here. We've been there before. Uh, the Laurier liberals uh, were wiped out in the West in 1917. We know how the liberals were wiped out of the West in the 1980s. Uh, in 2011, uh, the West went strong for Mr. Harper. We're back in a situation now where there's uh, a couple of seats in Manitoba. Uh, there are no seats in Saskatchewan. There's no seats in Alberta. And there's a... Uh, a division of a few seats in um, in in British Columbia. What what does this mean for the Liberals? Is this a different situation, or is this something systematic that the party has to deal with? Larry Leduc. Yeah, this this is the electoral system, but Patrice and the electoral system exaggerates these kinds of divisions. I've been very unhappy since the election to see the media, especially the visual media, continually putting up those colored maps. They yes. love the colored maps. <laughs> the West is colored all blue, and yes. the East is colored all red, and you got a little blotch of Quebec in the 
in the middle. It really distorts our politics and it distorts our political thinking. Now, it is true that the liberal the liberals did not get any seats in Saskatchewan or Alberta, but a quarter of Alberta voters voted liberal or NDP. Yes, those people are now unrepresented in Parliament, Very and that's much. a that's a problem of the electoral system. Yeah. Uh, Political scientists have been writing about this for years and years. Uh, Alan Cairns wrote an article which is still included on Canadian politics bibliographies in most courses in 1968, pointing out how that distorts our politics. It distorts cabinet formation as we're seeing right now. Trudeau needs to find representation from Saskatchewan and, and Alberta. He doesn't have any. Uh, so we have to be careful not to read too much into that. It's unfortunate that our politics is like that. The electoral system develop, delivers those kinds of distortions. It does it on a regular basis, sometimes more than others. Uh, Joe Clark had a problem with no members from Quebec, and he solved that problem by appointing people to the Senate and bringing him into the cabinet. Yes, that's the had been the traditional way of doing that. Uh, Justin Trudeau can't do that because he's got this new idea of an independent Senate. So I don't think he can solve his Alberta problem by recruiting a strong Alberta minister and appointing him to the Senate because that would go against what he's been trying to do with the Senate since he became leader of the Liberal Party. Peter Van what do you think? Well, I'm reluctant to tread into a debate over uh, <laughs> electoral reform other than to say that uh, I'm a big believer that uh, the strength of our system comes from the fact that uh, the people that sit in the House of Commons actually represent a piece of geography and a group of individual people. And the representativeness is critical to the success of our democracy. And the alternative, where you put all the power in the hands of the leader or some variant thereof to pick the list of who's going to be their caucus, ensures that uh, all those things people are concerned about, about leaders that are too strong and prime ministers are too strong, you ain't seen nothing yet until you see a system like that. So mm. I, I won't go further than that. Uh, but on the Western alienation uh, question or, or what's the lesson to the Liberal Party there? I think they quite consciously made a decision to write off Western Canada in favor of an issue frame that would get them the votes where they wanted to get the votes. So it's a conscious choice and it's, you know, one can be critical of it or one can be realistic and say, well, you know, they don't get too many seats and how far do they want to go to get a handful of seats in that turf because they're already in rough shape there for a whole history of what their policy questions are. The fact is there are very different political cultures and different parts of the country. That's why it's a good thing yeah. that the representatives from those different parts of the country reflect that. Where I think Larry's off the mark about it's always been this way is it's actually never been this bad this way in the sense, or maybe not never, but the trend was that it got worse yeah, I think that's in that point is, yeah. conservatives became yeah. stronger in conservative areas, liberals yeah. became stronger in liberal areas, even in places like Ontario, in the GTA, in places like, uh, you know, the inner circle of my writing, which... Uh, I think it's misidentified as a safe Tory writing. You saw the conservative share of votes <laughs> slipping They're dramatically. Just They're just teasing But you get out into the more rural peripheral yes. areas, conservative vote strengthened and grew. So the cleavages became stronger. Conservative areas yeah. became more conservative. Liberal areas became more liberal. That element of the divide, perhaps a bad thing and something that uh, uh, all parties should maybe a little, I think will be reflecting on. I, Certainly for the conservative party to break through, uh, and succeed, they have to reverse that trend in the key areas where it was happening to them. I may surprise you, gentlemen, but I'm thinking of the great leadership of Mackenzie King, who insisted on running in Western ridings. Uh, Only after he lost twice in my riding. <laughs> but he kept he won losing. once in my no, riding, but he, he lost losing. there twice. He kept losing, but he would present himself as a member of parliament. Uh, he ran in Alberta. He ran in, oh, did he run in BC? I can't remember. Um but he consistently ran in the 30s and in the 40s in the Western Canada, showing 
bold leadership that we never attribute to Mackenzie King, but I think we should give him uh, a thought the, this morning. Necessity is the mother of invention. If yeah, you don't have a seat, you, you look go. for one. You go for one. And that, again, I think that I'd be curious to see uh, the Prime Minister of Canada do that. We saw it again with Jagmeet Singh finding refuge in B.C. Elizabeth May did the same thing after she was defeated in Central Nova in 2008. She found refuge in on, on the coast. Uh, it seems as though the uh, the, the BC uh, Pacific Coast is uh, very helpful to uh, to uh, to parties on the left. Um, let's talk about the Tories then. I mean, the Tory strength in terms of the popular vote really comes out of the fact that they were totally dominant in Alberta and Saskatchewan. I mean, they I heard a figure that they, they took eighty percent of the vote. Is it six, six, sixty-five? Sixty-five percent of the vote, which is pretty dominating. Well, um, oh, there are writings where the numbers are, you know, crushing. Soviet scale, <laughs> and it's uh, alarming. Soviet, Soviet scale. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, uh, this is the electoral system. That, yes. That, that, that yes. Oh, those are people voting in the writings, are, reflecting and, the view of what is in their interest of their yeah. constituencies, yeah. and uh, that's legitimate. What's troubling is that, as I said, that cleavage divided, and the odd part being that there was no compelling set of issues, so people retreated kind of more to what the media has been all about for the past decade or so, identity politics. So if you tell them through the media that Westerners are conservatives, guess what? They'll become conservatives. Mm. If you tell them that in the city of Toronto, if you're a conservative, you're not going to get invited to the appropriate uh, cocktail parties you want to go to, well, you won't be a conservative then because you want to fit in. And the media, by driving this identity politics, and we see it in Quebec every election, uh, are, I think, largely responsible. And I could hold forth on why I think the media is responsible for many of the ills of our, I don't think it's our electoral system, but uh, the outcome. Oh, we could all blame the media. Uh, Let's blame the leaders. I, would, I, I, I want to come back to the leaders. I mean, the fact is that Mr. Trudeau did very little to appeal to the West. Mr. Scheer, the argument, I think, is very strong, did very little to appeal to Ontario or to Quebec. Um, Larry Leduc, yeah, I, I want to get a slight, or to the Maritimes, for that matter. Yeah, I, I want to get a slightly different factor in here. I don't dis- disagree with any of this because I've, there are regional divisions. Peter took my comment about the electoral system as advocating electoral reform, which I'm happy to do, but that's not what this discussion is is about. Uh, it's really about the the electoral system, just an empirical fact. It does what it does, sure. and we have to live with the seat yeah. distribution, not worry about whether th- there are a few more votes. Here or there. I want to introduce another variable, and that is provincial politics. Yes. I've become convinced uh, since seeing the election results and thinking about them a little little more analytically that this election was much more about provincial politics than we realized. And so when we talk about the conservatives coming up short in Ontario, it isn't just about Andrew Scheer. It's about Doug Ford. And it's about the, so the liberals never had. And it's about the up. liberals making that a centerpiece of their campaign in Ontario and going on the attack against the Ford government, which helped them along along that route by introducing cuts to 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 education and uh, a number of other provincial programs that allowed them to portray this uh, as reverberating back into federal politics. Now we know about that part, but we haven't been paying enough attention to Quebec. Because in Quebec, exactly the opposite was going on. Quebec also had a provincial election a year ago, yes. which was won by a new party. The CAQ. The CAQ. Its premier is popular. Its government is popular. And therefore, those seats that the liberals hoping to recapture from the NDP in Quebec simply didn't show up. Why didn't they show up? They didn't show up because Mr. Blanchet, who was an ally of the CAQ, yes, stepped openly. into that vacuum yes. and brought them home. Uh, riding a popular provincial government, a popular premier, 
and a, a, a homegrown Quebec issue, Bill 21, which 70% of the Quebec electorate agrees with them on. So these are, the, these are two huge provinces. And uh, the conservative failure to make a breakthrough in, in urban Ontario and the liberal failure to make a breakthrough in, in Quebec are, to me, a large part of the story of this minority outcome that we're talking about a few minutes ago. Peter Van Long. I uh, want to agree with Larry about it being the provinces, and I do think that there was a large extent to which provincial politics that has been more clearly articulated filled the vacuum where a federal absence of issues wasn't there. Uh, but in Ontario, where I have to uh, depart from Larry is this notion that somehow Doug Ford had the impact of dragging down Andrew Scheer. Uh, this was all driven by the Toronto Star, pollster named John <laughs> Corbett, did the identical polls, same frame, and said, oh, look, the uh, Andrew Scheer is doing poorly and he's being dragged down by, uh, by Doug Ford, except when you actually looked at the numbers, Andrew Scheer was behind the Liberals in Ontario by a bigger gap, 4% more, than uh, uh, Doug Ford was behind the Liberals in Ontario. So you could have used so, him to hitch him. So who up. was dragging who down? And yes. as the election went on, yes. that gap grew. Interesting. And by the end of the election, I can tell you from internal polling that we have, that Doug Ford was 11% higher mm. in the GTA in urban Ontario than Andrew Scheer was. So it's a, a, a well-accepted media wisdom and knowledge as the truth, but it's not the truth. Not. But there may be something in another theory, which is a theory that's gone on for years, that uh, people in Ontario like to vote for one party at the provincial level yes. and have the other party at the federal level to balance it off. And I've always said that I've looked at the research, I've looked at what people say, and there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever for that theory, and yet, other than the fact that it always happens. It always happens. Um, I want to go to the Green Party. Are we looking at something that is new here? I mean, we've had, as you've pointed out, both of you, we've had third and fourth and fifth and sixth parties almost since the beginning of Confederation, not always successful. But now we're in a situation where the Green Party uh, captured over 6% of the vote, only three seats, but 6% of the vote. Are we looking at a new normal here with that fourth party, that fifth party, I should say? Yeah. The, the, the uh, new normal is too strong for me. Uh, the new normal is that the Green Party polls pretty well between elections. They were polling above 10% going into the election campaign, and they ended up with six. Uh, again, that's one of those things that looks like a, looks like a victory because they had 3% in the last election. Now they have six, and people say, wow, the Green Party doubled their vote. But if they could have gotten the votes of everyone who said they were going to vote for them in the early polls, they would have been above, above 10. Um, they also have an electoral system problem because the issues that they run on are national issues, and, and, uh, but they depend on regional strength. To win, a, to win a seat. So they've been able to win two, two seats in BC. They picked up one in New Brunswick. That's not going to go away. The electoral system is not their friend. Is not their friend. Peter Van Loon. By all rights, the Green Party should have displaced the NDP this election. Mm. And this is where I am harshly critical of Elizabeth May and her leadership. Uh, she leadership failed to matters. see that opportunity yeah. in all her public debates and discourse. Yes. It was kind of obvious, you know, right down to telling Andrew Shearer, you're not going to win this election. <laughs> Justin Trudeau is going to win. She wanted Justin Trudeau to win and her uh, potential supporters took their cues. They either voted for the Liberals, as she was suggesting they should, or they said, oh, I'm going to vote for a real alternative then that doesn't like the Liberals, the NDP. And she effectively took her party down from where they were. Under different leadership, it might have been very, very different. They had the right election where the potential issue frame, the questions that are on the national uh, agenda right now, tailor-made for a yes. Green Party. 
They're making breakthroughs provincially where they've never made them before. Not internationally, the political system is fractured. Greta Thunberg's coming through. Yes. Uh, national Everything controversy there. there. Everything was lined up yeah. for them. Yeah. And under a different leadership, like an Andrew Weaver from BC or this chap from PEI or someone like that, one thinks that they probably would have made that breakthrough. And uh, I think they would have made that breakthrough, certainly on the popular vote, if not on the seats, but probably on seats too, because of things like uh, the concentration on Vancouver Island and so on. They really should have won every seat on Vancouver Island. That's where they were positioned at the start of this campaign, and they kind of squandered it. So now the Green Party is at a turning point. There's a minority. Might be an election relatively soon. I think it'll be a long time, but it'll be whenever Justin Trudeau wants it. But they have a potential now with uh, Elizabeth May having stepped down to have a very different kind of leader who can remake them into that party that has the potential to displace the NDP. We're back in a situation that we really encountered in the 30s. Again, I want to put a historical cap on this. In the 30s, when we did have uh, five parties running running strong, uh, I'm thinking of H.H. H. Stevens' Reconstruction Party in uh. 1935, Picked up uh, almost 9% of the vote, but it was only elected in one seat. Uh, we had a continuation of, of uh, five-party uh, five system in, in, in the 30s and, and 40s through various um, iterations, different parties. They come and they go. I want to raise the last issue here before we go, and that's the fact that the party that won lost. The Tories got 34.4%. The Liberals got 33%. And I simply want to point out that we've been there before. Uh, in 1896, the Tupper Party, the Conservative Party under Charles Tupper, won 48.2% of the vote, but lost to the Liberals, who took 117 seats. In 1926, Mayen, uh, Arthur Meehan and the Conservatives took 45% of the vote. Uh, the Liberals took 43% of the vote, but the Liberals formed the government. In 1957, Louis Saint-Laurent and the Liberals took 40.5% of the vote, while Diefenbaker took 38.5. This is uh, John Diefenbaker. Conservatives, progressive conservatives, 38.5. The uh, conservatives formed the minority government. Uh, Dief uh, won uh, the election in 1962 uh, by just a a smidgen, 0.2%. He formed the government, though, but it was very, very close. And finally, in 1979, uh, Pierre Trudeau took 40% of the vote. The Liberals took 40% of the vote in 79, but the Conservatives took 36% of the vote and they formed government. So my question is simply this. Uh, how has our system survived this, <laughs> this recurring injustice? Are we at a stage now where the result of this election is going to compel more people to rethink our electoral system. Larry Leduc. Why, why would you call it an injustice, Patrice, when that's what our electoral system is? I mean, uh, Peter, Peter is an advocate of, the, of first past the post, which is the system we've had since Confederation. And that's, that's fine, but that's what it does. So it doesn't really matter. These are sometimes called by political scientists wrong winner elections. We have them provincially as well. If yes. you go through the, yes. the 10 provinces, you'll find lots of them where the party with the most votes didn't win the most seats or form the, form the government. It's what our electoral system does. No one cares. Really, uh, you know, it's an interesting little tidbit of fact after the election to say, oh, they didn't get the most votes, but it doesn't matter because that's not the way our system works. Peter Van Lone, what's your thought? Well, I remember in 2006, 2008, we formed minority governments with more votes than the other parties, and we endured months of 
opinion editorial pieces and people uh, just uh, in trauma over the fact that the government lacked legitimacy, as they reminded us all the time, since we had less than 50% of the vote, right. something that never seemed to trouble them when it was a liberal government. And uh, I'm waiting for the same wave of articles right now about the need for election reform in the media, and I, I, I'm not seeing them for some reason. And we all know the reason why. Uh, but that being said, I'm not one who's going to call for change to the electoral system. Even though we were the vote winner as conservatives and we ended up with fewer seats, uh, I believe that that system in a country like Canada does the best job of creating parties that are capable of forming governments, that are capable of bringing the country together. And it may be that after an election like this, you think uh, the country is more divided than ever. And in some ways on paper, it looks like it. And people voted that way. But when I look back to previous times, and maybe it's just uh, my way of looking at things, but uh, are we in new territory or is this the new normal? This is the old normal. The issues, the divides are the same. The problems are the same ones that we've seen in politics before, even you know the ones that are the ones based on severe divides, Western alienation, big cities versus uh, rural Canada, Quebec nationalism. They're the same familiar divides we've had for generations. But in a way, I think they're actually with less emotion than before. There isn't the same kind of anger before. It's the reason why, you know, Easterners find it hard to take Western alienation and separatism seriously for a good reason. There are no more patriotic Canadians than Albertans. <laughs> you know, you won't find more people waving the Canadian flag and proud to be Canada and asserting their patriotism than Albertans. So when they then start talking so, about them being alienated and so Peter, potentially separating, no one takes them seriously. So we're, we're doomed so, to plot along? I think we're going to plot along just nicely. Uh, I'm not troubled by uh, the, the divisions that exist in the country. Obviously, they're troubling and you want to address them. But I don't think we're in a situation right now where anybody looks at Blanchette's success in Quebec and says, oh, the country is going to split up tomorrow. Uh, I don't think even he advocated that. The guy's success was based on, eh, you know, we just want to see we'll Quebec's defend interests Quebec defended. Interest. And yeah, tell the, me the, a Quebecer that hasn't been doing that since the day of McDonald. Yeah, this is, a soft, uh, this is what's sometimes called a soft nationalist government in Quebec now, and it's going to continue to be to be that way and to advocate for Quebec. And uh, as Peter said, these divisions have been there for a long time. Uh, electoral reform is not coming anytime soon. I think the last liberal government after 2015 proved proved that. And the opposition doesn't just come from uh, the other parties. It also comes from right in the Liberal caucus. Uh, we saw that during the debate. The two and after this the result, committee. why would they? And why would they? That's so right. Larry LeDuc, are we in new territory or is it same old, same old? No, this is very much old territory. In fact, the party system today looks a lot like the party system has looked like at various other periods in Canadian history, many of which we've mentioned in this in this discussion. Now, we certainly wouldn't have expected this if we were having this discussion after the 1993 election, mm -hmm. when everybody was talking about the new party system and yeah. uh, we political scientists were writing about the third or fourth or fifth or sixth party system. It's a parliament. Now, now it's the old two and a half party system that we have had before with different fragments of it in different parts of the country. Any last, any last words? Well, I think the Canadians can feel reassured that uh, the government uh, of Canada is a very familiar thing, that we're a stable country and our system works, whatever its failings may be. And uh, what uh, I think is probably the biggest concern is that there are real issues. Uh, to the extent that the elections are often about the economy, we didn't really talk about it. And while Canadians' economic literacy is probably higher now than ever before, so you can have really good debates about the economy, 
We've been living as we always have under the shadow of the states, where their economic powerhouse right now and the success that's happening with their economy has dragged us along, and it's allowed us to ignore some of the underlying problems that are there. Those will come home to roost at some point in time, and I think that's the big issue. Uh, When times are not so good south of the border, the lack of investment and the lack of our proper uh, uh, answers to those economic challenges right now in Canada is going to be a big issue. Yeah. And, and amazing, Peter, that the trade agreement, which we just finished negotiating with the United States, which was a very painful and dragged out series of negotiations uh, and still has not been ratified, uh, is, was hardly discussed at all in this election yes. by, by anybody. Foreign policy was not an issue. No. I want to thank Peter Van Loan and Larry Leduc for being my guests today. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. If you like this podcast, please let people know by using your favorite social media. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded on November 18th, 2019 in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.